Thanks for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. We're calling 2019 the year of the Bible, and all year long we're reading through the Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and our Sunday sermons are coming from the weekly readings. If you'd like to join in, go to cornerstonetulsa.org, click on Year of the Bible. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. The book of Psalms, chapter 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk and steps with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so with the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. All right, would you pray with me? God, thank you so much for this community of believers. Um, as we continue to gather this morning and sing songs and hear from your word, I pray that you would soften our hearts, um, that as we learn knowledge, that it would make us love God and love people more. So I pray you be with John as he preaches and um, us as we listen, and that you would change our hearts for the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks. You can be seated. <clears throat> All right. Well, this is, uh, this is day six of the new year, the year of the Bible, which means we have 352 days until we're done with, with our reading. That leads us to Christmas Eve of this year. Uh, we will finish with Revelation 21 and 22. And uh, it's been really fun. And this is also the first sermon of the year of the Bible. And so just kind of give you an idea of how this is going to work. You know, we've got, this week we did like 22 chapters of reading in Genesis, and then uh, we did, we've done six psalms from Tuesday until today. And every week when we preach, the, 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 the theming is loosely going to come from where we've read. So it could be that there's a storyline that we pick up on. It could be that there's a theme that we want to talk through. It could be that there was a phrase, or it could be that there was even just one word in our reading that just as we've been praying about what to share on Sunday mornings, we think we need to pause there and linger. And so uh, this morning is going to serve as kind of an introduction to uh, the year of the Bible as we're getting started. Uh, if you've been participating, and, and tons of you have, it's been fun, um, you've seen some, some great stuff, some beautiful stuff in God's Word in, uh, in Philippians, not Philippians, in Genesis. Uh, you've seen creation. You'll get to Philippians in like, like October, something like that. Uh, we saw the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2. We saw, we saw the fall in Genesis 3, but also how God like mercifully provided skins to cover the shame of Adam and Eve. Uh, we saw God's covenant after the flood with Noah, the rainbow, that whole story. Uh, we saw God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis, Abram in Genesis 12 and 15. Also saw some stuff that was a little bit weird. Uh, anybody have, like, questions about the Nephilim, what's going on there? And, like, Noah's Ark, which is a story we tell to children for some reason, is a very disturbing story about uh, all these people perishing except for one family. Uh, some really interesting stuff, not to mention Sodom and Gomorrah, bring in Lot's whole family line. We think this is off to a very interesting start. And this is, this is God's Word. It's full of uh, good stuff. It's full of questions. It uh, leads to questions for all of us. As we're getting started, and maybe this is your first Sunday here, first time you're hearing about it, and you're like, I'm intrigued. I might do it. Uh, let me encourage you just to keep reading, just to persevere in your reading. And as you have questions, uh, don't be intimidated by them. Don't be afraid to bring those questions to God in prayer and say, what on earth is the deal with this? 
Because here's the thing. We should be reading Scripture from a posture of confidence. If all truth is God's truth, your question is not going to catch God off guard. If all truth is God's truth, he is not terrified. Oh, no, they asked about that thing. I haven't thought that through yet. If all truth is God's truth, do not be afraid. Ask. Keep on asking. Some of the best advice that I got when I began to read the Bible as a 17- and 18-year-old came from a Bible teacher who passed away a few years ago, and he said, Scripture teaches Scripture. And so we're supposed to read the part in view of the whole, and especially the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus. How does Jesus illuminate this text for us? Scripture teaches Scripture. And so as you have questions, as you have concerns, as you have things that just like stir your heart with love for God, just keep reading and see what God does to teach you and instruct you through the process. Just keep reading. And I'd also encourage you to remember the why as we're going through the what, as we're going through the task. That the goal of all of this is not just the bucket list experience of like, hey, I actually read the whole Bible, though that's a really meaningful bucket list item. The goal is not merely like getting more information. We're overwhelmed with information every day. Our goal in this process is personal transformation and community transformation. Our goal in this process is not just like theological, biblical education, though I think that's really, really important. The goal is sanctification, that we be made holy, that we be changed as we go through this whole experience together. And John Ortberg, who's this great author and pastor in Menlo Park, California, said, has this great line. He said, the goal is not for us to get through the scriptures. The goal is to get the scriptures through us. And this is how scripture talks about itself. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul said, all of scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be fully equipped for every good work. It's the breath of God that's supposed to fill our lungs like oxygen to equip us to live in a world that's very, very complicated and broken by sin, including the brokenness in our own hearts. It's breathed by God that we might inhale it. This Hebrews 4.12 says the Word of God is living and active. This book is not like other books. It's alive and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It pierces, even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You find sometimes as you're reading the Scripture that it's as if it's cutting you open and revealing what's on the inside of you. Verse 13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. We read this book and find that it's reading us. We're supposed to be changed through the process. Now, the way in which this book, which believers and, and, and people of all faiths have studied for millennia, because it's, it's made an indelible remark on the human story, the way in which this book, this narrative is God-breathed, and the way in which this, this book cuts us open is not immediately self-evident. It's not immediately something that you might perceive. And the way in which it's come to be known and experienced as a means of hearing the voice of God is not something that everyone immediately gets or appreciates. It's something that's to be enjoyed and studied and taken in over time. But not everybody gets it. In fact, there's some people, there's studies by Barna who talk about reading the Bible or reading the Bible in public is regarded as something that is like extremist. 
So people think that it's maybe extreme or maybe you think it's dangerous. Probably more often than not, people think it's just irrelevant. Like using like watching movies on VHS or a cassette tape or like churning your own butter. It's like we just don't do that. We've evolved, right? And yet I can't believe it's not butter. There's this great quote uh, that's attributed to uh, Arthur Schopenhauer, but he probably didn't say it. I couldn't find the author. It says, all truth passes through three stages. All truth passes through three stages. First, it's ridiculed. Second, it's violently opposed. And third, it's accepted as being self-evident. It's, it's not immediately experienced and simple over time. And in fact, deep wisdom and deepest of truth is not something that is typically easy, obvious, and simple for everybody. And seekers of wisdom, people who want to know truth, must embrace what Nietzsche called a long obedience in the same direction, slowly going on this quest for a really long time. Sometimes in the face of opposition or criticism, and more often than not, just dealing with our own apathy and lack of drive and brokenness that's in each one of us. It's the slow and steady work of investigating and praying and asking and considering and waiting to see what is proven over time and what God does. The Bible describes the qualities of such seekers using uh, different metaphors. The Bible says we should, we should have the perseverance of, of a pilgrim on a journey, the endurance of a pilgrim, the dedication and the humility of an apprentice at the side of a master learning a craft from someone who knows the best. We should have the teachability of a student, someone who's easily corrected and doesn't put up a huge fight. We should have the tenacity and the toughness of an athlete who knows what it means to put in blood, sweat, and tears into your task. And we should have the patience and the work ethic of a farmer who knows that you don't re judge results by what happens in a day, but what happens in seasons and years and lifetimes. Unless you think that this quest for wisdom or seeking truth or even just reading through the Bible is ultimately something that's just self-serving for our own benefit, I want to argue that what we're doing in here together is ultimately something that's for the good of our community and for the good of our family and those that we love. It's for the good of the world. It's ultimately something uh, that's missional. There's this great, great book uh, by Alan Kreider called The Patient Ferment of the Early Church. And, and he was trying to understand why did the, the early church grow so explosively. It started out as this teensy tiny minority movement in the Roman Empire and ultimately outlasted it, became a, a, the dominant religion of the world. How on earth did it happen from such humble beginnings? And this is what he had to say. He said, in the first two centuries of the church, it was not Christian worship that attracted outsiders. In other words, it wasn't that they had flashy worship services. It wasn't that they had really good production or that like people were streaming the podcast online. It was like, I need to go to that church. It wasn't anything like that. It wasn't Christian worship that it attracted outsiders. It was Christians who attracted them. And outsiders found the Christians attractive because of their Christian habitus their Christian disposition, their manner of being. The Christians lived and behaved in community so differently from the people of the Roman Empire that it made them necessarily magnetic to the community. It, it desired an explanation. Why are they the way that they are? And he says, how do they become that way? Through catechesis and worship. Catechesis is Christian instruction, 
in doctrine and belief. It's, it's, it's Bible study. And through worship, through part of what we're doing together on a Sunday morning. Our catechesis, our study, our disciplines, our worship shape us uh, into the kind of people that are attractive, the kind of people that just in our very being are sharing the gospel because we're living according to a different narrative. And this is why, in my view, like being shaped by the gospel, as we say in our mission statement, always leads to the renewal of all things, necessarily leads to some kind of external outreach components, not necessarily in a conventional sense of programs, but being shaped by the gospel is necessarily a renewing act. It's springtime coming to a community where it's always winter and it's never Christmas. The slow and steady work of developing Christian habitus, characterized by the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, all of these things, this is our task. But the means of accomplishing that task uh, are accomplished through the opposite of the typical American posture, which favors what is fast, what is loud, what is cheap, and what is convenient. When the way of Jesus, more often than not, is slow, and it's quiet, and it's costly. And we must have to, we have to together unlearn the habits of hype and pressure and fast and busy and these, these thrill-seeking kind of spiritualities. And, and I'm, I'm chief among, among those who need to unlearn that because I so want on Sunday morning all of us to cry. <laughs> I will know it's been a good Sunday if I feel goosebumps like two-thirds of the way through the sermon. We got to unlearn. Emily knows it's so true. I have to repent. Uh, we have to unlearn that kind of thrill seeking spirituality if we're to have the work ethic and the long view of a farmer or a pilgrim or an athlete. These things take time. Instead, we need to embrace the slow work of God, who, in describing what a faithful look, life looked like, preferred metaphors like a tree that's planted by a river that slowly over the years putting down its roots into the soil to find its nourishment. And it takes us to Psalm chapter 1 as our introduction to the year of the Bible. Uh, if you have a Bible, you could turn there to Psalm 1. I hope you'll bring, uh, if you're a papal Bible person, I hope you'll bring your Bible so you can mark it up and refer back to it as you're reading through the years and the days. The psalmist that uh, Aaron read, uh, this beautiful text, the psalmist starts this, this poem with the word blessed, favored, happy, so blessed is the one who, who lives in these particular ways. And the psalm reflects two ways of living. One of them is inherently blessed and favored. It leads to flourishing. And another one of those is self-destructive. It's not that God is imposing either flourishing or destruction on one. There are simply ways of living in the world that God made that lead this direction. It's a description of a blessed life, a favored life, a happy life, versus one that is self-destructive. Uh, verse 1 says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, who does not stand in the way that sinners take, and does not sit in the company of mockers. Doesn't walk, doesn't stand, doesn't sit. And we see in this movement a kind of deceleration. So in the face of temptation, there's like... You're slowing down to consider it and to ponder it. And you can see it so clearly in the lives of your friends when they make dumb choices, because you never make dumb choices, but your friends are idiots. 
you can see, oh, why are you even entertaining that line of thought? Come on, that's beneath your dignity. Or we can see it in ourselves when we look back and we know the moment at which we began to decelerate. We know when we began to to go off course just a little bit at a time, drift. uh, The psalmist says, the one is blessed who does not decelerate, who refuses to decelerate in the face of temptation. This is what Eve did in in our reading this week heard the words of the serpent who's kind of mysteriously introduced, the, mysteri- the, the serpent who questions what God had said, and Eve decelerates enough to begin to entertain it and to have a conversation when she should have just hightailed it out of there. And Adam is sitting silently like a dummy in the background. Come on, guys. Paul, in writing to Timothy, like talking about these decelerating moments where you could be tempted to slow down and ponder things that you shouldn't be thinking about, gives very different advice, gives great advice. 1 Timothy 6, Paul says to the young pastor Timothy, but you, man of God, flee from all this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. There's a way that leads to self-destruction. It's in decelerating in the face of temptation. It's slowing down to ponder the validity of of ways that lead to our own death. And Paul says in response to this, accelerate in the opposite direction. Blessed are the one who do not walk and step with the wicked. Stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. And then it says, but. You could underline or box the word but. It's a word of contrast. It's a word of saying, I'm going to describe something different than what I just described before. How many of you guys remember Highlights Magazine from your pediatrician's waiting office? Which of these things is not like the other? Or like, you know, which picture is different? Find, find the differences. There's supposed to be a difference between those who are blessed and living in the way of God and those who are walking and standing and sitting in the way that leads to destruction. Verse 2, it says, Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night, morning and evening. Meditation, this word, and you probably saw this in the videos, uh, it's just like muttering to yourself. It's like talking back to yourself. It's contemplating. It's kicking something over. You're kind of meditating in a sense when you're doing the dishes and you're talking to yourself. You're like, okay, what was the thing I said I was going to do? It's a form of meditation. It's, you're in your like unconscious, almost level self talking about where you are. Uh, The closest I think I've come to like a great meditation moment was when I was in college, I worked at Office Depot, store number 359, just right down the street here. I don't know if Jeff is still the manager, but if he is, he'll really take care of you. And uh, I was working at Office Depot, reading the Bible a lot uh, my first couple years of college. And uh, I came across Psalm 24, which we will read on January 24th. And uh, it really resonated with me. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the rivers. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? And on and on. I thought, that's good. I need to memorize that. And so wearing my black pants and my little Office Depot blue shirt, I, uh, I wrote Psalm 24 down on an index card. And as I'm walking around, like redoing inventory at the night, and as I like get off the forklift from getting the furniture down, not while I was driving ever, I've got Psalm 24 in front of me, and the store is empty, and I'm just muttering to myself, the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. And then some crabby customer walks in. I'm like, 
dang it, he belongs to the Lord because the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world, those who live in it. And over time, this man, this began to, began to like take root in my heart. The earth is the Lord's and all that is in it, the world and those who live in it. And uh, one day I'm walking around campus and I see some trash and I pick up some trash because the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. And uh, now with our children, we're walking down the street and they say, hey, guys, look, and they'll pick it up. Why do we do that? Because the earth is the Lord's and all that is in it. Began to take root in my heart, Psalm 24, the whole thing. It's so good. This is meditation. This is why if you see pictures of Orthodox Jews at the Wailing Wall, they're, they're going, rocking back and forth, and they're muttering the Shema to themselves, or they're muttering words from the Torah to themselves. It's a really practical way that we hide God's Word in our heart, line by line, repeating, speaking, considering, asking, what does this mean? What's the implication of that? This week, we're going to read the story of Jacob. Jacob's got a fascinating storyline beginning at his birth. We know that this is just like a kind of a sinister dude. He's a, a deceptive guy. And, uh, and, and I've been thinking about the story of Jacob for the last couple of weeks because I'm, I'm, I'm doing where we are, and I'm also about a month ahead, so I know where to, what to preach. And uh, I've been thinking about the Jacob storyline. Like, there are questions that I don't know. What are we supposed to take from that? Why does God bless Jacob, the deceiver, and not Esau, the firstborn? And why does that kind of thing happen again and again in the book of Genesis? And what does that tell us about the nature of God? All of this is meditation. Blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he's meditating day and night, uh, morning and evening, uh, contemplating, muttering, memorizing, mulling stuff over. And that process does stuff to us. The one who does such things, uh, habitually meditating on the law of God and going to a place of delighting in it, not just going through the act, but delighting in the act. The scripture says it's like a tree planted by streams of water and describes it beautifully. The leaf does not wither, who yields its fruit in season. Whatever they do prospers. The one who delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night is one who will prosper in this life. One of my hopes for Cornerstone from the very beginning is that, because this is, we, we've got a sweet and simple operation here. I love it. But one of my hopes for Cornerstone has been that a person might go to their apprentice group for a period of months, or they might come to Sunday morning worship services for a couple of months, and one day they're walking out, and they say to themselves, I just feel nourished. I just feel like I've got nutri spiritual nutrients in my body. It's like when you eat junk food all the time and you've got, you're just used to having the headaches all the time. And so you've got ibuprofen in the car and in the office and at home. And you're used to feeling sluggish and you think life is sluggish and you should always have headaches. And then you start introducing vegetables to your life. You start walking a little bit. Uh, you start moving and enjoying like clean air and you find, man, I don't need the ibuprofen quite so much. There's a sense of like, I'm getting healthier. I'm feeling alive. I've been asleep for so long. My vi this vision of a, a person like a tree with roots in the river is my hope for every one of us, that we would be so deeply nourished in this life. We feel like we are truly alive in Christ. But then the, the scripture brings a, a strong word of contrast. This is what the way of the righteous, the one who delights in God's law, looks like. But how about people who don't? It says, not so the wicked, those who do not delight in the law of God. 
And they are the opposite of a tree. It says they're like chaff. You remember watching Looney Tunes and, uh, you know, Wiley Coyote? They're always like tumbleweeds going around in the background. That's who it's talking about. The impermanence of chaff that's blown whichever direction the wind goes, that's rootless, that's anchorless, that doesn't have a lot of predictability and stability over the years. Scripture says there is a way to live that is blessed and favored. And because God created everything, he knows how everything works and how it's intended to work for our flourishing. If we live in this way, it leads to life. If we learn to delight in this way, not just comply with it, but delight in this way, it will lead to our flourishing. But if we refuse, we will suffer the consequences of our choices. God is merciful. The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous alike. God is always working for even the good of those who hate him. But the the meta-narrative of Scripture is there is a way that leads to life, and God is inviting us into it, not to merely comply with his law, but to delight in his law, in his word, in the way that he says leads to life. And you could kind of imagine a scale of one's relationship with God's law. Now, on the far end, you have despising it. I hate that. Despising it, rejecting it. On the other hand, you've got delighting in it. And then right in the middle, a click over to the right, you've got compliance. I'm just barely in it, somewhat begrudgingly perhaps. And, and now you'd say, like, dude, I've never been to church. Give me a break. Maybe you're, like, more in the ignorance category, and you're like, you just you haven't had a chance. Maybe where would you put yourself on that scale of despising, of ignoring, of complying, or of delighting? Adam and Eve's choice was ultimately as simple as, will you allow God to define what is right and good and beautiful in this world, or will you seize autonomy and attempt to do it for yourself? It was as simple as will you just comply with this law represented by the tree. And the tree ultimately, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, ultimately represented that choice. Will you define good and evil for yourself? Or will you comply? Will you submit to God's rule over you and allow God to be the one who who says forever, this is what leads to life and this is what leads to death? In the first 20 chapters of Genesis, and I'll give you a hint, the rest of it too, demonstrate for us what happens when we seize autonomy, when we refuse to go in the way that leads to life and determine to say, this is what's good and evil for me. When this happens, when we seize autonomy, violence and arrogance and abuse and corruption and mistrust multiply on the earth. And this is certainly reflective of what's going on in our lifetime, but also in every lifetime. And at a certain point, isn't it it reasonable, shouldn't we at least consider that we honestly don't know what's best for us? Shouldn't we at least entertain the idea that we don't have the information or the perspective necessary to make the call about what will actually lead to peace or to flourishing or to thriving in this life? That in spite of the major breakthroughs in tons of of areas of our society, in spite of the fact that we are very knowledgeable, we're smart, we're also not wise. We're fools. We don't know what's best for us. It's like the folks on The Bachelor, forgive me, Bachelor fans, who listen to the advice of listen to your heart. 
I hate to break it to you, but your heart is giving you some terrible advice, especially if it says to you, go on The Bachelor to find love. It's like Dwight Schrute to Michael uh, Scott in the office. Michael, your heart is a wonderful thing, but it makes very stupid choices or something like that. The humility required to acknowledge that we might know, not know what's best for us may very well be the first step toward our flourishing. So I'd ask you, as you're sitting in this chair in 2019, at whatever age you are, whatever experiences you've had, where are you on this scale? How do you relate to God's rule over you? How do you relate to God's law, God's word? You say, like, I, I despise it. I, want, I don't want to have anything to do with it. Or maybe you're like, honestly, I'm just ignorant. That happened tons of times in the Bible. People discovered God's word. Like, this is, man, we've missed this. And maybe this year will be a year of discovery for you. Maybe you're one click over to the right a lot of the time. Like, man, I was a church kid. I know what I'm supposed to do. And like, but you do it somewhat begrudgingly. Or maybe you're, you're moving toward delighting in God's law. Like, man, I'm not ashamed of it. It's not antiquated. This is life. This is truth. I'm setting my life on this thing. And more often than I'd like to admit, I vacillate all over this scale. I vacillate all, all over this spectrum of my relationship with God and his rule over me. Can I really trust that God knows what's best? And wasn't that the serpent's question to Eve? Does God really think that this will happen? Does God really care? Does God really love you? And in the face of such lies, we don't need to decelerate. We need to accelerate in the, in, toward uh, the trajectory of God's law. And I wonder if you can imagine a, a picture of your life some years down the road where you're less like tumbleweed than you are today. I wonder if you can imagine a version of yourself or, your or you as an individual, as, as a family, as a friend group. I wonder if you can imagine a version of yourself that is not constantly in crisis mode. In the face of tragedy and grief and loss, and we're all going to experience those things in this lifetime, can you even imagine a version of yourself that is rooted and anchored, not looking for a new philosophy or manner of life every time something horrible happens or there's some tragedy, a version of yourself that is nourished and putting down deep roots that can endure the frost and the storms of life? Can you even imagine a version of yourself? Can you imagine a version of yourself not vacillating between the extremes in your relationship with God and his rule over you, not hovering around the middle, sometimes like paying attention when it's convenient and sometimes doing your own thing, but throwing yourself headlong into the rivers of God, being nourished on Jesus Christ who is the living water. Can you imagine a version of yourself that is flourishing and rooted and nourished in those ways? Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the seat of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He or she will be like a tree planted by streams of water whose leaf does not wither, who produces fruit and season. Everything they do prospers. The, the, the thing about the human story that we all know to be true is that so often while we want to make the right choice, those destructive impulses are right there with us. That it's not enough to just say, choose what brings life, because we've got this cancer in our hearts, this disease within us that eats away at our will to choose that which is good. 
But the gift of Jesus, who's the heir of this whole storyline, is that God liberates our will through the accomplished work of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit to choose what leads to life. That even in the first pages of Genesis, God was whispering a plan of rescue, whispering a plan of redemption to not only free us from the guilt and the shame of our sin, to not only clean up the consequences of our actions, but to deal with the evil that caused our rebellion in the first place, both in our hearts and in the world. And the way that God deal, would deal with it would ultimately be through the person of Jesus Christ in his incarnation, who would bear in his body on the cross all of the guilt and shame for the things that we've done and the things that we've left undone the things that we've thought, every destructive desire that's come from within the human heart, nailing our blame on the cross and through his resurrection, liberating us, giving us the gift of the Spirit so that we might not just survive in this life, but might be nourished on the life of God within us. Those scriptures say the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. If you're in Christ, you're a new creation. That's a present tense reality. Scripture says, therefore, put to death all the stupid stuff that leads to destruction and run toward what gives life. But you, man of God, woman of God, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness and peace, all of these things. Jesus is true. Jesus wasn't lying he wasn't pulling a fast one on us. He actually believed that what he was doing would accomplish something for us, not just something we would enjoy on a distant planet when we die. The kingdom of God is at hand. Through the gift of the Spirit, our will is liberated and we can choose life this year. And may it be true for our lives every year that we might choose what leads to life, that we might be oaks of righteousness trees planted by streams of living water. Let's pray. Lord, we go through this whole experiment on faith, that you are who you say you are, that your word will prove true. You say that when your word is preached, it never comes back void, having accomplished nothing. And so on this day, in this place, in 2019... We just put all of our hope in you. Prove yourself to be true. Prove your word to be alive and active in us. Prove your word to be the breath of God. Breathe that we might flourish. As we open up the scriptures on a Monday and a Tuesday and a, and a Wednesday, when we're reading stories that we don't understand and we're getting into clean and unclean and all this stuff, prove yourself to be true. Cause your word to, to, to bud a new life within us that we might flourish. And like the first followers of Jesus, those who knew him in his resurrection, we might be so attractive to the world that people are coming to you left and right, not because we had a great speaker, not because we have great programming, but because we were being changed and the world found that magnetic. Well, Jesus, for those of us uh, who, who, man, we just, we haven't, we don't know you. We haven't walked with you. I pray that this year would be a year of joyful discovery and adventure and people would find themselves coming alive. For those who have been running from you, who've despised your law actively or passively, that this might be a year of repentance. This might be a year of new life. This might be a year not by uh, ex just the exercise of will alone, but by the uh, enjoyment of your Holy Spirit, and the presence of your Holy Spirit in them, a year of discovering, man, you're more powerful than we could have imagined. 
even in weak people like us. And I pray that for every one of us that we would more fully and more completely delight in the law of God, put down deep roots in Him and flourish. Let your light shine before men, Jesus said, that they may see your good deeds, see your habitus, see how you've been changed, and glorify your Father in heaven. Jesus, we give you this year. You set the agenda for what we preach. You set the agenda for what we meditate on. Do whatever you think we need. We're open. We're available. In Jesus' name, amen.